let's start by praying. We're going to uh, get into it. But Lord, we, we love you. Lord, we love, thank you that you love us, that your care for us is exceptional. Lord, we thank you that you have made the way. If we've heard, as we've heard through the songs that we've sung already, Father, we pray that today, that as I speak, you would speak to us, that you'd speak to me and that you'd speak to all of us. Lord, that we would have greater revelation of who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, wonderful. If you can put the recording on, that would be great. Okay, well, it might be great. We'll see you in a minute, won't we? But uh, <laughs> at least it will be recorded. So, um, so today we're talking about uh, in Luke 9. Uh, and Luke 9 is a, fascina- a fascinating chapter in the life and times of Jesus and the disciples. And it sits on the cusp of uh, a couple of major division points in the writings of this book. And therefore it's important, probably as much as, as always, but certainly in the, in the context of this book, to understand uh, what it is that Dr. Luke is trying to tell us. And so in Luke's um, Gospel, uh, there's some geographical markers that follow the major divisions of the book. And so to begin with, we get the preface, so that's where it sets the context of what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And then it talks about the groundwork of the ministry of Jesus in the first few chapters. And then it moves on to what the ministry um, of Jesus was like in Galilee. And then it changes tack slightly and it moves towards him making his way towards Jerusalem, the journey uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then finally it finishes in Jerusalem itself. And as we know, ultimately, with Jesus um, being uh, crucified on the cross and being raised from the dead. And chapter 9 fits neatly into a number of sections as well. And we're going to work through these sections. But the point here is is that Luke 9 fits across sections 3 and 4. If we can just come back one. Um, Sections 3 and 4. So this sits on the, the end of the ministry in Galilee and shows the beginning of the movement towards Jerusalem. And it's really important that we get that because it's quite a clear and distinct change. It takes Jesus from his local area onto a journey to his final destination. And at the beginning of the book, at the beginning of the book of Luke, uh, Dr. Luke states that it's going to be an orderly account. And so we shouldn't really be surprised that it is orderly, that there are fairly distinct sections, both in the whole book but also in the individual parts of it. But So we're just trying to identify those today. So we're going to be talking in a little while, a little bit later in Luke 9, but we need to understand the first parts of it as well. So we're going to go through that to begin with. So in chapter 9, it starts um, 1 through 6, the, the verses there. It's Jesus sending his disciples out on an adventure in the local area with very minimal supplies. He tells, he empowers them, first of all, with power and authority to go and do the works that they've seen him do. And then they go out with almost nothing. Uh, They are to stay in people's houses and then they are to go to people where they find there to be peace. And then in verses 7 and 9, we come to the point where there's this amazing story that we will all know about, where there's the feeding of the 5,000, you know, with the few fish and the few loaves. And so we see this miraculous provision with Jesus and the disciples somewhat working together, but Jesus primarily. Um, and this really brings us to a conclusion of the first section of uh, the book, uh, the chapter of Luke. See, from 10 forwards now, it changes tack. And so rather than us seeing what Jesus and the disciples were doing, the adventures that they were getting up to together, um, Jesus starts talking about 
who I am. See, this is the crunch point of this talk, really. The disciples had spent around three years with Jesus to date, and they had witnessed firsthand all of the healings, the teachings, and the debating, setting people free, and much, much more. But now was a time for greater understanding and indeed revelation. It was, in many ways, the disciples' thinking was still constrained by the contemporary Jewish thinking and teaching of the day. This was about what the Messiah was going to be like. They were under the impression that the Messiah was going to be somebody who was powerful and would dominate and would overcome the regime and somebody who would restore Jerusalem and draw people to it. But Jesus had never explained it away like this. This wasn't what Jesus' plan was. He'd been acting really differently to the way that they expected him to be. But from this point forward, the disciples are going to be even more perplexed by Jesus and flabbergasted by what he said, not only by what he did. So in, 18, in uh, chapter 9, verses 18 to 22, Jesus asked the disciples some direct questions. He says, first of all, he says, who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples answered in a couple of different ways. They said, well, perhaps you're John the Baptist. Well, John had been killed by this point, and so that would have meant him coming back sort of in a spooky way, in some way. Or perhaps it's Elijah. Well, he was certainly dead from many hundreds of years. Or, or maybe just some old prophet. So Jesus wasn't really getting uh, what he wanted. So he changes his tack and he says, well, who do you say I am? So he's saying this to the people that have been with him for three plus years and have seen all the, these incredible things happening. And he just asked the direct question, who do you say I am? And Peter pipes up first, as you'd expect, because Peter's Peter, isn't he? What a great character. Love that character. And he says, God's Messiah. Well, bingo. Yeah, no, you know, you've got it right. Kind of. You know, you've kind of got it right. So you've named um, Jesus as who he actually is. But the whole context around it is still a little bit tricky. So Jesus then moves on and he says in verses uh, 23 to 27, he says some controversial things, things that are going to shock the disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, in the parallel verses, as often there are, there's parallel verses in the different uh, Gospels. And so in Mark 8, it says that, you know, obviously it explains what um, Jesus had said, which was quite shocking to these guys. And then it talks about Peter. And Peter, being Peter, decides to give Jesus a little bit of a pep talk about what it's actually going to be to be the Messiah. Which is an interesting tactic, I think you'll agree. And it says this in verse 32 of Mark 8. It says, Peter took him aside, that's Jesus, and began to rebuke him. Okay, confident. It's a confident start. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, which is probably more likely. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Ouch! I mean, I love Peter, but what a put-down. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that, does it? Well, actually, maybe it does, but we'll come to that a little bit later on 
in this talk. But get behind me, Satan. And it's just showing this contrast in the way that Peter is considering what the Messiah is going to be like and the way that Jesus is considering it. Peter clearly is not getting it. He is essentially saying to Jesus, have you not read the script? Do you not know what you are supposed to be acting like? Well, Jesus is clear. And this really brings us up to date. And so we're going to now start with the actual chap- uh, the part of the chapter that we're going to study today. So Luke 9, 28 to 36. It's on the screen behind me if you'd like to turn to it in your Bible as well. So Luke 9, 28 to 36. So, about eight days after Jesus had said this, that's why it's important that we understand, otherwise I'm going to read that and you're going to go, what happened in the previous eight days? Well, these sorts of things. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as flashing of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, if it is good for us to be here, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid, and they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So we're going to break this down into three sections. First section will be majestic light. Second will be glorified companions. And thirdly will be exalted father. So let's start one. Majestic light. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. In Mark 9, as I said, there's parallel um, scriptures to much of this. In Mark 9, he is described as his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. In Matthew 17, 2, it says, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. All three authors, I think you'd agree, and I think we would be struggling as well, is that their struggle is to try and articulate what they've seen. This pure, majestic brightness is a difficulty to explain. You know, maybe today we would use washing powder or something like that as a comparison, but by no means is any of these things going to get close. This blindingly bright, pure light of the majesty of God is emanating from Jesus. Now, throughout the Old Testament, uh, God is reaching out to his people in light. God, the invisible, reveals himself through light or through fire or cloud. But you never get quite to see him. God initiates the liberation of the slaves of Egypt with Moses and the burning bush. He leads them by a tower of fire and by um, tower of fire by night and by cloud by day. Moses, when he goes up onto the mountain to receive the law, there is light emanating from the cloud. 
the inauguration of the tabernacle, there was light that came. At the opening of the temple in Jerusalem, there was light and glory, and they couldn't stand up. But the closest that we get in the Old Testament to this um, show of glory is perhaps when Moses kind of chances it a little bit when he's talking with God and says, you know, basically, I want to see you. And God's response is, well, that would be great, but you, you kind of can't because you're going to die if you do, because my glory will be overpowering. And so they come up with this plan, do you remember, where they, God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock, like in a, in a crack in the rock, and he, God passes him by at a distance. And the effect of that was reflective glory, was that Moses' face shines to the point where actually people demand that he puts a veil on because he's just too bright. But this was only a distant glimpse. It was a reflective glory. But it was profound because it made a big impact on him. But here with Jesus, this isn't a reflective glory. No, he is one greater than Moses. It's emanating from him. It's his own glory. Jesus' own glory radiating out of who he is. And it isn't that Jesus was being transformed like Paul describes in Romans 8 or in Corinthians 2. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, sorry. Um, that was talking about humans being transformed from glory to glory. No, Jesus already was with his glorious light. It was just that in his human form, it had been dimmed. He was still holy God. It's just the aspects of it had been veiled to us. It had been hidden from us and hidden from the disciples. This is truly amazing when we consider who Jesus really is and who he really was whilst he was on earth and the, the dimness of some aspects of his godhood, but nonetheless it was still there. Now, however, before the disciples' very eyes, his full glory and majesty were being revealed. They were on display. How are they going to react? What are they going to do? Well, we'll find out about that in a little bit. So we move on to the second section. Glorified companions. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And it's widely understood here that Moses and Elijah were representing Old, um, the Old Testament. Uh, Moses was representing God's law and Elijah was representing the prophets. And interestingly, both Moses and Elijah had had their own experience of God whilst on mountains with Moses on Sinai and Elijah on Mount Horeb. And they had been speaking with Jesus in this instance here uh, about his departure. And the Greek word for departure is exodus. Exit, we know that. And in the Bible, there's a very powerful story, isn't there, in the Old Testament about the exodus. And so the, the, the use of the word here is powerful because it's referring to this first exodus out of Egypt. Do you remember where the Israelites, they were slaves to Pharaoh and to Egypt? God had commissioned Moses to go and tell Pharaoh to release them. And Pharaoh wasn't keen, I think it's fair to say. God had sent multiple warnings and ultimately uh, different plagues. And the final plague was a terrible one that killed the firstborn of all beings. And God had made this covenant with um, the Israelites that if they marked their homes with lamb's blood that they would be passed over. Ultimately, 
Pharaoh let them go free. Uh, then he changed his mind, as was his will, uh, and they, chased, they were chased down. The, the army chased the Israelites into the Red Sea. You know this story well. The whole of the chasing army perished. God miraculously saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Jesus is about to lead the ultimate exodus and the fulfillment of the first exodus and Passover. He is, set, he is to set all people free who come to him, free from being slaves to sin, free to be in relationship with the Father and into their promised inheritance, which is the new creation in, the whole, in which the whole world will be redeemed, ushering in the new kingdom. And to answer the previous question about how Peter and, the compa- and his companions responded to the amazing show of glory, well, it says in verse 32 that Peter and his companions were sleepy. Hmm, seriously? Unfortunately, that's the way it is uh, translated. Um, but anyhow, they're now fully awake as Jesus' glory has awoken them and shocked them. Now, it's quite difficult to come up with um, sort of illustrations of the transfiguration because I don't know about you, but I wasn't there. Um, but I think one thing is for sure is that many of us have had quite a profound experience with God at some point or other. And I just wanted to relay a point that has stuck with me for many, many years about um, an instance where I, I felt like I met with God exceptionally powerfully. So there was, uh, we were worshipping with a group of people, probably about 30 or 40 people. And in that setting, the presence of God just fell. And every single person was flat out. And I can't speak for anybody else, but I don't remember much about what was happening to anybody else. But for myself, I remember a couple of things. I remember the sense of awe about who he was that something far greater than me was present in the room, that something far greater than me was doing a work in me as I lay face down on the floor. I remember my friend Dave playing the keyboard. Um, He was leading worship that day, and he was sort of half lay, half crouched, trying to still play above his head because he was just enjoying the presence so much but was being weighted down. As I lay on the floor, I remember I was actually lay on a couple of steps. They were only small steps, but it wasn't like a comfortable spot. But I didn't want to move. It was like I didn't want to change it. I wanted to just be there. It was like there was a weight pressing down on me. It's not that I couldn't have stood up, but I didn't want to stand up. There was something very deep happening. I don't know, maybe you guys have had similar experiences. It's, it's a bit like trying to describe the bright light. You know, I'm not doing very well. It was profound. This happened over 20 years ago, and yet it still reminds me of who he is because it takes him, it makes him real, it takes him beyond what I necessarily read because there is a greater being, there's a greater power. And I think that's what this story is trying to show. So as we move on to our final point, We're going to tie all these things together in a moment. The exalted father. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus 
was alone. Oh, Peter, it's not a great couple of weeks, is it, really? So, first of all, trying to give Jesus a bit of a pep talk, and he gets put back, really, and says, you know, get behind me, Satan. Awkward. But now he's offering up to build a few shelters on a mountainside, and actually the glory of God comes. So not now the Son, but now the Father. And this voice comes from heaven. This is my Son. Listen to him, i.e. don't listen to Peter. Let's listen to Jesus. Now, as with my experience of that, what I would call sort of experiencing God's glory in a deeper way, Peter also would never forget this. He writes in his own book, in 2 Peter 1, some 30 years later, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when his voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We heard it ourselves, this voice that came from heaven as we were with him on the sacred mountain. This, when you're affected, when you're touched by the glory of God, it's something that lasts. It's something that is profound. But ask the question, you know, I've heard lots of speakers talk about Peter as if he's a bit daft maybe sometimes. But I wonder, well, what, why is it that he's making these mistakes? And I, I just think that I've gave it quite a lot of thought. I love Peter. I mean, maybe there's something in him about me that reminds me. Yeah, and so I don't want him to just be like daft because that might make me like that too. So I'm going to try and make some excuses for him. But I think that they're, they're real really. You know, Why is it that he's doing this? Well, I think his whole world view is being turned upside down, isn't it? And he's trying to roll with it. He's not running away from it. But he's so unsettled, he's being rocked to the core. His his whole understanding is being shaken. His whole worldview is being challenged. Well, do you ever feel like that? I certainly do, at points. But this was a fundamental challenge for him. But this was not the time to make a shelter or a shrine, no. This is a transition point. This is a moment that Moses and Elijah are going to be fulfilled and surpassed by Jesus' mission. They were talking together in glory about Jesus' mission to the cross, the destination for Jesus' ministry. To die, to be raised, and then seated with God once again. To conquer the powers of sin and death, ushering in the new kingdom. Hallelujah. This is amazing truths. From this point forward, Jesus is steadfastly moving towards Jerusalem and ultimately the cross. In Luke 9:51, it says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So out of interest, God's voice is heard three times in the New Testament, all relating to Jesus' son. The first one we all know, and it's a well-known one, which is at Jesus' baptism, when as he comes up out of the water, God announces, this is my son, Uh, whom I am well pleased. And then here at the Transfiguration, as we've been talking, this is my son, listen to him. And then there's a less well-known one in John 12. Now, Jesus has moved from Jerusalem. Remember, we were talking about the geographical changes. And in John 12, Jesus has now moved from Galilee. He's made his way. Um, the, uh, The triumphant entry to Jerusalem has happened, and he's now in Jerusalem and he's ministering and witnessing 
whilst on his way and whilst he was there. And some Greeks come to him and they come to meet him. And Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls not to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And he was talking about his own death. Then in verse 27 of that chapter it says, Now my soul is troubled, so this is Jesus talking, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken. And then in verse 33 of the same chapter it says, He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. We don't have time to go into John 12, but I encourage you to go into this in your own time. It's an amazing and fascinating passage that will take quite a lot of study, but it's incredible. But the point I'm making here is that Jesus' life was a journey. He had this supernatural birth, and then we see that there was, um, you know, from his age of 30 to 33, we have many details of the journey in the New Testament. Transitioning from geographical place, from Galilee first, um, and performing many miraculous signs and wonders, and becoming exceptionally well known to all the local people. And then he journeyed on to Jerusalem, where ultimately he would die and be raised. But as, as I said at the start of the talk, the geographical markers in the book of Luke help us to show the journey in the physical. But there was also a spiritual journey. God, his Father, was with him. There are three markers in the voices of God in the New Testament. The baptism, then moving on to the transfiguration, and then moving on towards his death. God was with him through the journey, both in the physical and the spiritual. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 18 of the Old Testament, Moses prophesies some 700 years earlier, he prophesies this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, as in Moses, from among you, your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. This was predestined 700 years earlier. This was fulfillment of prophecy. And so as we come into land... The transfiguration is a focal point in the revelation of the kingdom of God. For it looks back to the Old Testament and shows how Christ fulfills it. And it looks forward to the great events of the cross, resurrection, ascension, second coming and the fulfillment in the new kingdom. So in conclusion, as we start to wrap this up, this is the third talk in the series on encounters with Jesus. And we all read our Bibles, I'm sure, regularly. We read about Jesus as this human being who does amazing things. And it's often very easy to lose sight of his incarnate nature, that he was God here on earth. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis that we'll put on the screen. He says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it... I see everything else. We need to see everything by what Jesus' journey through life on earth accomplished. God on earth conquering sin and death so that we can be in relationship with him, ultimately fulfilling the Old Testament and 
and ushering in the new kingdom at the second coming. As we draw to a close, I'd like to pose two application points, if that's okay. Maybe we should have the band up, is that okay? So application point number one. Do you ever feel like Peter? Like your world's being shaken? That everything that you have been brought up believing is being challenged? That you're in a bit of a headspin and you don't know what to do or where to turn? Or maybe it's just that you feel like you've made loads of mistakes. Well, I've got good news for you. Because God loves Peter's. He is merciful and is forgiving. And we just need to turn back to him. Peter ultimately becomes one of the founders of the church. And he does amazing things in God's name. Remember Acts 2 where he preached and 3,000 people were added to the church in that day. 3,000 people. It's incredible. I believe that today is a day where it's for you to submit yourself back to the king, the maker of heaven and earth. Uh, Time to commit to living in line with the life that he has set for you. And secondly, and I don't want to approach this harshly in any way, shape or form. This is one which I believe that God wants to come sensitively. And that is that don't be overly discouraged by difficulty or suffering. The glory is coming. We get glimpses now, but the main is still to come. When times of difficulty, and in particular extreme difficulty, come, it's hard to see the bigger picture. It's hard to see the horizon. But somehow we need to see that our ultimate destination isn't here. No, our ultimate destination is to be with him. And when we're with him, there will be no more pain. There will be no more death. No more crying. But when we're struggling to see the horizon, we need good friends to help us. We need people to help lift our gaze. People to encourage us. Maybe today is a day where you know that you need to look up and see him. And can I encourage you to do just that here today? Be brave. Ask a friend. There will be a prayer team that would love to pray for you. They'll be up here at the end of this next song. But we need to lift our gaze and see his glory in what is around us and what is to come. We are not here only. We look forward to eternity with him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Hallelujah, that there is more to, the, to who we are and what we see. There's more. There is so much more. And so as we absolutely finish, God says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. What great advice. Let's listen to him. Let's listen to Jesus. We are on a journey, glory to glory, on a way to a better place, a place of glory through the accomplishments of Jesus. And we want to thank him for that. So we're going to worship him now. Would you like to stand?